for me, you have to be on a crusade. So I think you have to have a goal to work towards winning, but you also have to have an enemy that you're like fighting against. At least for me, I think I have it in my genes and DNA that like I have to be in a fight, you know? So for me, like I'm fighting against like social injustice and like the systems of oppression that have held back the families of our kids for like too many generations and the unfair obstacles that they face that I didn't have to face, you know, growing up. Hey, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. This show is filled with wide-ranging conversations that will bring you insights, experiences, and expertise through the stories of what each of my guests are building. Driven By Podcast is produced by Driven By Sam Coates. And for more information on how my talented team and I serve entrepreneurs, corporations, and private families tell their stories, go to drivenbysamcoates.com. Also, for more podcast episodes and to sign up, go to drivenbysamcoates.com backslash podcast. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. Hey everybody, who would have thought an English mid-19th century sport would empower inner-city students to overcome the opportunity gap and also transform lives? My guest today is Shane Young. Shane co-founded Memphis Inner City Rugby and is a former Teach for America educator. After working in the inner-city school system, and knowing there had to be a better way, Shane and his co-founder launched Memphis Inner City Rugby from scratch. As you'll hear in this interview, they've put everything they've had into this work. This work has evolved to way more than just rugby. Their work provides mentorship, job creation, nutrition, counseling, transportation, and much more. There are currently 11 million children in poverty across the USA, and this organization knows how to reduce that number. On this episode, you'll hear why some nonprofits become a shell of what they once were as they scale and how to fight against it. Why and how rugby transforms lives and helps girls and boys overcome the opportunity gap. The unrealized opportunity that USA Rugby has to accelerate the transformation of lives across the country, plus much more. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, if you like this episode, please share and tell a friend. Please enjoy this week's episode with Shane Young. Shane, thanks, man. Love to be able to do this with you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. 
So in a previous conversation, you've shared that nonprofits, they can evolve into a shell of maybe what they intended to be in the first place. What does that mean? I just think that as, and it's it's no fault of anyone or some, you know, bad tendency of you, like, you know, it's just the reality of scaling charities. I think um, we begin to focus on sustainability, uh, efficiency. Well, not everybody focuses on, on efficiency, but sustainability. And, you know, we become more, as we grow, bureaucratic and we scale and we're focused on budget and systems and and then, you know, once you have a full-time staff, you're focused on, well, now how do we sustain our staff and keep them happy? So we close at five and we close on weekends. And, you know, all these things that are very necessary evils, but my only expertise, and I say that very loosely and lightly, is on, you know, the urban education population in Memphis and the Deep South, our kids' youth development. And I think we need to be so relentless in that industry, in that realm to serve the right way. And so I just, I, I do get frustrated and often notice how charities in this realm and this work will become distanced from the margins. You might kill me for saying this, but you told me you Ubered over here <laughs> and I asked you like issues or something with your car. And you're like, nah, man, like uh, one of the students needed my car and, you know, part of the space we're in. So he's got my car. So I Ubered. And you said, it's part of our work and it's part of the challenge because sometimes it's hard to say no, but when people trust you, they count on you. Did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just it's just relationships, you know, and that's Memphis Inner City Rugby in a nutshell. You know, people ask us, how do you get so many kids out to play? Or how do you get so many alumni coaching? And, you know, just why, you know, the community seems very special and it's very unique. And when people really open the hood or turn the stones of what Memphis Inner City Rugby is, they see this very unique DNA. And uh, it's all through relationships because we have such tight ones with um, the kids that we serve. And so they become alumni and then they are not finished in being in poverty. And so transportation does happen to be one of the biggest obstacles they face. Memphis is one of the least densely populated metro cities uh, in America. How do kids get let down? How do they get burned to where they almost, it takes a lot to have their trust? Well, I think that our our systems let down kids from the moment they're born into the, some of the zip codes that we work in. You know, they're, they're born with the deck stacked against them. And so everything is an uphill battle. And that's how you explain in a, in a very simplified way, generational poverty, you know, the deck is stacked against you from birth. You know, you're born into challenges and obstacles that, you know, people from backgrounds similar to mine, and I'm middle class, you know, I'm not born from some elite background, but even even just a middle class background in the Northeast where I was born, the network, the safety, the resources, the accessibility, and the ease at which someone like me was able to traverse through childhood in my teenage years, just set me up for success from an academic, financial, neurological perspective. Um, and so kids that don't have that advantage and edge get let down from birth, but then as they traverse through life, they face way more obstacles. And so when they run into people, systems, entities, institutions that don't have a relentless response to meeting them where they're at and helping them with their needs and so they're, they're just let down and almost at every turn, I feel like. So let's take a 14-year-old that is in your program. For context here, could you maybe lay out 
the obstacles that they have to go through from birth to 15 years old? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best, you know. And we did this example at our 10-year anniversary was in October, uh, five, six months ago. And we um, had this audience for the first time and were able to kind of explain this because even the even the biggest fans and donors of MICR, which, you know, there aren't enough of, they um, often don't even get to see or understand the depth of our services and the holistic nature of what we do. They just like certain elements of it, certain components of it. They see the impact and they're like, wow. I'm like, oh my gosh, if you could actually understand the the big picture. And so we we introduced a, you know, an alias, uh, but a very common sort of demographic and characteristic combination of one of our kids. So let's call him Jordan. And Jordan, you know, joins the program at age 14. So he's in high school, but he's on a third grade reading level. He's in a single parent household. Uh, His refrigerator isn't often full. And so he's sort of at this resource deficit, you know, but he hears about rugby. He thinks it's like football. One of his friends play. And by the way, it's free to play, you know, because Memphis Inner City Rugby provides it for free. So um, mom doesn't have to worry about the $300, $400, you know, travel uniform costs that many sports teams will charge even in the inner city. And so Jordan joins the team. And Jordan is introduced to the sport, this very strange European sport that's very physical and challenging. Um, He's introduced to that sport by an MICR alum who looks like Jordan and actually attended the same school as Jordan and has overcome some of the obstacles that Jordan's facing on and off the field in and out of the classroom. And so Jordan is welcomed by that coach who is only six or seven years older than Jordan, but is trained in trauma-informed coaching through you know, the national leaders in sports-based youth development, the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. And so this coach is starting to build a real relationship that has meaning with Jordan. And Jordan starts to love that coach. And that coach is really good at making practice fun and thematic. Uh, So it teaches character lessons and off-the-field lessons. And so now Jordan is building competencies and has a relationship that he can leverage for help Uh, with that coach and also by the way is making friends on the team by the way Jordan just learned how to tackle and tackled the biggest kid on the team and is getting ready for his first game and so he might experience a win a win a real one for the first time in his life at age 15 let's call him now and so he begins to really uh, get good at the sport he starts to attend enrichment programming on Fridays so he's eating pizza he's watching film he's going bowling he's playing paintball he's traveling he's hiking he's doing yoga at least once a week through 24 weeks of the school year, plus summer programming and optional six weeks addition to that. So he's engaged year round and supported. And anytime he needs a ride to practice, he's provided with one. He's always hungry when he gets there because the refrigerator is not super full. So he gets a snack, at least a snack when he gets to the games, usually a meal at games, you know, more of a nutritional snack on, on practice days. So his mom begins to really, really appreciate this service too, because she's saving money and gas gas money on picking him up. She's saving time. She can kind of focus on her career, you know, because she's she's young for a mom, you know, of a 15, 16 year old. And so she's had a challenging uh, life that she is uh, working through as a mother. And so, um, you know, Jordan is now a junior and a senior and he has started to become a captain and a leader on his team. And now he's traveled to like Los Angeles and D.C., for the urban rugby championships. And he's gone to Arizona once for an all-star camp. And now he, he's on social media with friends around the country who play rugby with a similar background 
because of the relationship with the Urban Rugby Initiative connecting black and brown children from poverty under the, the sport of rugby, you know, across the country with a common goal to empower each other, support each other and unite unite each other under a different sort of culture of this game. And so uh, now he's getting uh, an opportunity to go to the MICR combine, you know, either the fall or the spring or both where he's getting looked at by college coaches, whether that's right here, University of Memphis or, you know, out in California, St. Mary's College, you know, some of the elite institutions of the country are going shopping, for lack of better words, in Memphis for our own alumni because they want diversity. They know how talented our kids are and they love the organization and our mission. And so they want to engage and offer scholarships. And so Jordan has now exposed himself to those opportunities. He is getting them, but, you know, he actually doesn't have big rugby dreams. He just wants to um, give back and uh, actually become a coach for MICR. So he graduates high school. He goes to the University of Memphis where he's playing uh, college rugby locally. And he uh, a, actually his part-time job is coaching the very team that he played for since he was 14. And he starts out as an assistant coach, $15 an hour. But by the time he's a sophomore in college, he's getting paid eighteen fifty an hour as you know a, a leader coach. By the time he's a junior and senior in college, He's a head coach, getting paid $25 an hour. At this point, he's been traversed through college by our alumni support program, which has world-class, intimate academic support programming, continued transportation support, nutrition support, mental health counseling. Because by the way, Jordan went through a really difficult breakup and he's got some trauma from his childhood still. And so he was able to access free mental health counseling support through MICR. And then by the time he graduates college, he's lined up with a job which will change uh, the generational wealth gap that his family's faced for hundreds of years in this country. And we've now made an economic and a human and a social emotional impact. And hopefully the sport of rugby is a little bit better for it, but mostly Jordan's life is better for it and his kids will uh, be better for it in the city of Memphis as well. So sorry for the long-winded response, but that's kind of Jordan's pathway. And I probably missed out on a bunch of stuff too. And you said 2,500 kids have come through? Mm-hmm. How many of those 2,500 have a path like that? I would say probably two-thirds because we don't catch them all as freshmen, right, as 14-year-olds. But uh, in a few years, it's going to be actually even deeper and more profound because we are just getting really good now um, in the last year and a half at middle school rugby. So instead of Jordan coming in at age 14, he's coming in at age 11. <laughs> and so by the time he's a 14-year-old, he's already played tackle rugby and learned how to pass and uh, have these supportive relationships, you know, sort of seep into his uh, life, you know, and MICR as an entity is already making an impact for him. So very excited about that. I want to be careful how I say this or ask this, but I saw that Teach for America, their annual budget from what I saw, is $300 million. That's local Memphis? No, for, for the That's national. national. Okay, okay. That's what I saw, and I need to be checked on that. When you think about that amount of money, and you think about all the people and all these things around the country, what are the gaps in the effort that's being done in education? What's not working? <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a great question, and we, we could break that down for— uh, we, could, we could do a 10-episode series, right, of, like, components of what's, what's not working. But I just feel like the issues our students face in the post-pandemic environment are so complex, neurological— um, and I'm talking about kids in poverty, you know, I'm talking about them exclusively and um, the challenges mm. they face now are just so amplified and difficult, complex, draining, you know, to deal with as an educator or a coach. And so I just don't think the typical average urban educator 
or coach or whatever, principal, dean, whatever you want to call them working at our toughest schools and in the communities that are affected the most, they just, and I'm not blaming them and I'm not attacking them, but they just don't have the capacity, leadership, competence, wherewithal, resources, superpowers to handle everything. It's just so much. And so I think the gap is just resources and human capital. And I sometimes dream about, man, what if like our country's best leaders, our most talented people, like weren't on Wall Street or I don't know, you know, just making $300,000 a year and running a marketing firm or a law firm. Like what if our most talented people who were just the most resilient and creative and entrepreneurial, what if they were, you know, helping in the inner city, like with our kids in real ways and like in the trenches, not just thinking of things or designing systems, but like in the trenches for real, um, how powerful that would be. So I just think the gap is in, you know, resources, human capital, capacity. And I know those are broad stroke terms, but it's just true. It's just we're so far away from actually meeting the needs of the community. If somebody gave you a million dollars tomorrow, how would you use it? I would just increase programming uh, and reach reach more kids and reach them at a deeper level. And so people are programs. And so we're doing, you know, our organization specifically is doing so much with so little, right? Like <laughs> our entire staff is five people deep. Like we don't have event planners. We don't have marketers. We don't have any fat to trim. So it's me and a co-executive director who, uh, you know, is our former director of operations, one of the most talented people I'll ever meet in my life who could probably run FedEx with her hand tied behind her back, Andrea Wensitz, uh, who's also a former urban educator. But then we have two program-facing people who are spread super thin and an alumni support coordinator who deals with all of those alumni cases that we do. And so there's no extra fat to trim. And if I had a million dollars, I would just be hiring, I would be doing more human capital, making sure we actually have the capacity because this is our model, this is our capacity. But everybody on that five-person full-time staff is under the age of 35, has no kids of their own, is an urban educator at the roots and core of who they are, care deeply about the mission, love rugby, and go all out for our kids. These are five people whose lives aren't fair. That's me included. You know, we, we pour in more than we should have to because we're not scaled up. We don't have fat to trim, like I said. And so um, I would hire more people, talented ones, to engage in this work to not just reach more kids but deepen the impact. And I'd also sort of fix some of the bells and whistles stuff. Like our kids don't have rugby shorts that match their jerseys. They don't have jumpsuits to walk off the bus with if we're even lucky enough to have a bus. They don't have scrum sleds like some of the elite rugby equipment. Like we just are trim and lean in everything we do. And so I would just like make the student experience a little bit more shiny and appealing with some of those aesthetics and, and swag and apparel for them. Cause that matters, you know, kids love that stuff and that matters for their retention and uh, their, their, you know, heart for the sport at first, at least. And, um, and yeah, just people are programmed. So expanding human capital. So if you, if you're meeting with a smart woman or man and they have the ability to either represent an organization or write a check themselves and they ask, how do you know that your, your work is actually working and how do you communicate the results that you have for the 2,500 girls and boys that come through your program? How do you answer that? Well, I, I could go any different direction because of there's so many different arms and realms of like how our impact manifests in, in real life. But I would just say, look at the composition of like our program facing staff and our, our alumni support staff. They're all alumni, you know, we're on track to pay 
$80,000 plus into the pockets of our own alumni, who, by the way, are still in poverty, but they are our coaches. They are our mentors. They are driving the kids around. And so show me another nonprofit that has kids who are truly from the quote unquote trenches and then are positioned in a way and care enough to give back to the very programs they came from in a meaningful way with paid jobs that are year round and highly accountable in terms of performance. And so to me, that's a testimony for the way they believe in this work and the impact they can create. And so that just didn't happen because of some creative design that happened because we, as the founders, the leaders, the people who scaled this up did the impossible. You know, we, we truly gave it all. We ran the program and scaled it as volunteers while teaching full-time and some of the most difficult circumstances you could teach in. And that's how we built relationships and, and got uh, an awareness uh, of what the services should be, how we should define the d- design services and programs to be responsive to what our kids really need. Um, and then that's the whole chapter evolved in advance when the pandemic comes into play. So when you say some of the, as teachers, we built this and did the impossible and some of the most difficult circumstances there are to teach in, can you give some examples? What does that actually mean? Uh, yeah, I just, I remember being a, you know, I taught for seven years and the last three years I was teaching, it was in a high school, one of the high schools that we, you know, serve a, a full fledged rugby program pathway in right now. And, you know, this is pre pandemic and we had so many teachers like quitting because there were, you know, there's fights and there's a lot of behavioral issues and social emotional regulation issues with the kids. And it's a tough thing to do, even though you do have fall break, winter break, spring break, summer break. Like I always think of that as the uh, light at the end of the tunnel for an urban educator, but it's clearly too much for people getting paid, you know, less than 50 grand a year. And so they burn out and quit. And I was in a school where now, you know, come February, we had half the school ran by substitute teachers. And so I'm one of the last men standing literally because the school is mostly women, you know, as teachers. And so I'm one of the last male educators left in the school. And so, yeah, I'm supposed to be teaching English content, but oh, by the way, like you got to take these kids into your classroom who are disrupting that classroom and, you know, act as a pseudo dean of students to deal with different casework. And, you know, it just becomes a, uh, you know, almost like a little bit of a war zone, you know, trying to manage your academic obligations and do the state testing and, you know, teach your sick classes a day, but then you're managing all these cases and parents and behavior issues and breaking up a fight. Oh, and then watch the cafeteria while the junior and senior class are in there eating and make sure they're all seated. And everyone that wants to leave to go to the bathroom checks in with, you know, just like, it is just human capital maxed out in an in a environment that is very stressful. And we're in Memphis, Tennessee, but you're saying this, that is the day in the life of an educator in inner city Memphis education. Of an urban educator, yeah. Like, we should pray for these people every day, especially the principals. You know, the principals, yeah, like, they get paid a little bit more. Their jobs are, uh, you'd think, a little bit more well-supported, but, like, they are the ones whose phone is still on at 8 p.m. They are the ones who have to unlock the school. and the, You know what I mean? So, like, all these admin, all these teachers, like, we, man— I'm in awe of them, and, and I was one of them. Like, and I'm not too far separated from that. So I just really appreciate them. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. 
AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. Going back to the 2,500 men and women that have been a part of your organization since it started, do y'all measure attendance? Do y'all measure literacy? Do y'all measure graduation, college acceptance? Do y'all measure all those things, any of those things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Not quite uh, literacy, like, too intimately. Like, we kind of leave that to the school partners, but everything else, yeah. And and mostly uh, social-emotional learning because that's where we feel like our impact is the greatest. But, yes, attendance, uh, grades, college graduation rates, scholarship earnings, like all of that stuff, but mostly social emotional learning. And that's through what we think is the most sophisticated measurement tool on the market. And that's called um, Hello Insight. And it gives us the most sophisticated insight into the social emotional learning of our students. And so, yeah, baseline testing, both physical and written tests in the beginning of an academic year, and then tested again at the end of our seasons on our programming sort of terms to measure the growth there. Yeah. So what is it? How, how would you communicate that? Um, I think that kids grow in the, the, the ways that, and, and again, like I, <laughs> I struggle to answer these questions cause I'm still in the trenches and like, I'm like literally at 3am today, I woke up to like a bomb of like 20 text messages hitting my phone. Ding, 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 ding at three in the morning. And so I wake up and look at it and it is one of our alums who is like, in a crisis, borderline suicidal. And I end up on like a 90 minute phone call with them th- from about three in the morning to like four thirty, five in the morning. And so my head's in the clouds, you know, as I'm doing this work and steering the plane and steering the boat, whatever you want to call it, I'm like absolutely in my own version of survival mode, trying to like process all of these sort of traumatic extreme cases um, while trying to deliver on this mission, raise this money, all these things. So, um, when you ask me what the major impact is, it's it's hard to even put a finger on because it's so deep and profound, but I believe it's in leadership capacity, uh, communication skills, self-efficacy, belief that you can become somebody, belief that you can take risks and have a safety net. I, th- I believe it's, a, it's an impact in their network because they see us as a network and an entity and an institution they can lean into. Uh, and draw resources from, as well as this national and global rugby community that um, the most enthusiastic rugby players in MICR become embraced by. Um, so yeah, so confidence, uh, network, communication skills. Um, and I also believe uh, healing is one of the n- major components because I believe that our kids who face extreme trauma, um, whether that be through just the very surface level symptoms of poverty or actual you know, adverse events in their childhood, I believe that this program through year after year of impact uh, helps them shed that trauma and sit in some of the emotions and deal with um, them in a more healthy way and become more emotionally regulated and more resourceful 
um, because they learn how to connect with things like uh, mental health therapy and traverse through college as a first generation college student. So I know I'm rattling off a million different things, but those are kind of the highlights of what sticks out to me in terms of their impact. I read that you or somebody, your executive director or somebody that works with you said that you were struck by the dramatic lack of resources that existed for your students, but during and after school. So they decided to start a rugby team. That was at the very beginning. That was with your partner, right? Mm -hmm. So how does a rugby team do that? Well, uh, you know, being responsive and relentless. And so you, you hear me say these three R's, you know, responsive, relentless, relational. That's the DNA of MICR that was born and con conceived in 2012 when we first started that first team. And that's because, you know, we were able to convince 25 kids to jog down the street after school and practice this strange sport with us. So that's a feat in its own. But then we learned really quick, like, oh my gosh, no one's got cleats. Okay. Like, no one can also afford those for this strange sport. Like they're not going to go like spend money on something. They don't really know what it is. And so let's provide them with cleats. Oh yeah. And shorts too. And then everyone needs a ride home after practice. So we got to get in our cars. Now we're, now we're spending a lot of our own money. Oh man, let's get them involved in the local competitive Tennessee rugby association. That's a hundred dollars per student to just register them to be able to play. So now we have to do a crowdfunding campaign, you know? So we just fell backwards into all these learnings like, okay, the kids need cleats. Okay. They also need rides home. Oh boy, they need nutrition. Like they can't be playing on an empty stomach like that. Oh wait, they can't even play in a sanctioned match without this registration cost. So we got to go find out how to spend that money. So, oh man, this kid's super talented. This kid is like, can make the, the South all-star team, but he needs to pay 500 bucks to be part of this like camp and team out of Nashville you know, or at a little, you know, so all these different things we just fell backwards into and we tried to be responsive to. And we just were young and we were 21, 22 years old. We had the energy. Um, and so we just like went for it, you know, and never said no. So you love rugby and you saw a way for rugby to be something outside of school hours that could give people hope and give you an ability to pour into kids and help them in ways that they weren't getting helped. Yeah, I used to love rugby. I think Devin still does, my co-founder, but uh, <laughs> I am uh, completely jaded and frustrated with rugby um, as an institution in America, you know. But uh, yeah, that's how we started, and I loved rugby growing up, and I was that was the sport I was best at, so had some success and fell in love with it, yeah. You said jaded and frustrated with it as an institution. What do you mean? Just like, why is our job so difficult, you know, at Memphis Center City Rugby? You know, it shouldn't be. Like rugby is, you know, decently popular in America and it's growing in the college level. And there's so many, you know, you move to any city in America, you're going to find enthusiastic rugby community that will embrace you. And they have teams, adult teams, college teams. Youth rugby has exploded since like the early 2000s in America. But like I started MICR and co-founded it as a 21, 22 year old. And I just did it with my head down and I wasn't thinking of much in terms of the big picture. We were just, you know, taking every step as we went and fell backwards into most of the scaling. But now I look back and I'm like, how are we the first ones to really dive into the trenches of like an inner city and try to use rugby as a tool to help kids? And why is that such a new and unprecedented thing? And then you think about, you know, why our backs are against the wall for fundraising. Shouldn't we be able to lean into like the American rugby community for help? Well, USA Rugby's bankrupt traditionally rugby people around the country are not good businessmen. They're not good marketers. They're laid to everything. 
everything is a party. It's beer drinking and rugby and reflecting on old times. And like, we're not innovative. We're not efficient. We're not getting on TV. We're not growing actually as much as we should be at a pace that, you know, matches how cool the sport actually is. And so like when I sit back and try to do quote unquote, the impossible here in Memphis and use the sport in a real significant way in, you know, one of the poorest communities in the country, I just get frustrated watching the American rugby community just kind of be complacent and lack resources. And like, I don't know, we just feel like we're on an island, like, you know, and it's just frustrating. So um, I'm not blaming anybody. Like most people that work in American rugby are volunteers. They're not like full-time employees. So, you know, how do you hold a volunteer accountable to like being better? But I'm just like, as a young guy, frustrated by the progress or lack thereof. What do you get out of rugby that you don't get out of football or baseball or basketball or soccer? Well, track number one, it's, it's huge, hugely accessible for both boys and girls. Right. So when you say football, well, you know, a lot of people compare football and rugby because the tackling nature of it and the physical nature of it, but like girls don't and really can't like access football in a significant way, but rugby all day. So that's one thing just, you know, that sets it apart. And then, you know, like I said, it's got that physical element, but so does football. But then in football, you've got like 50 guys on a roster, 11 are on the field. You've got like 35 on the sidelines watching. Most kids never get a real opportunity. And definitely most kids in a a football game never get the ball. But then rugby, like everybody gets the ball. You play both sides, offense and defense. You've got sevens rugby. So that lends itself to like the faster, quicker kids. And then you've got 15s rugby and that lends itself to like, the bigger, stronger kids. And we play both throughout the year, you know, sevens in the fall, 15s in the spring, you know, at Memphis Center City Rugby. And so on top of that, it's got this global component. You know, it's big and popular across the world. Here we are on St. Patrick's Day and Ireland is the number one rugby team ranked in the world, which is kind of new. Uh, It's usually been New Zealand, Australia, or South Africa, you know, over the past, you know, decade. And Ireland is now number one. So shout out to Ireland. But I don't know. It's just like so dynamic and fun and, um, it deserves the attention that our kids give it because they really love it. You know, our kids fall in love with it. How'd you fall in love with it? Uh, just got lucky. You know, my dad had played growing up. Um, and then I never knew that as like a child, I played basketball, football, baseball, like everybody else. And then I think I was like 10 years old when he kind of found this local, and we were in New Jersey, you know, Northern New Jersey. And he found this local flag K through eight rugby league, you know, for kids in the middle and upper middle class. And, you know, Northwestern New Jersey. And he brought me out. I was like, I don't want to play that. I play football, basketball, and baseball. But uh, I ended up, uh, you know, obviously loving it. And I was better at rugby than anything else and never turned back. My brother and I both both played. I watched the mini documentary on your website. And it was it was with the, the young women that were going to go to state. And they didn't know if their state game was going to be on because of the weather. <laughs> but just within that piece, they had pride they had excitement. They were carrying themselves in a different way at the end versus the beginning. Is that what you're saying? People come in, they feel connected to it. They get taught, they get loved on, they get to be a part of the action. And then if they do well, they experience success. And even if they don't do well, and that's why Relentless keeps coming up because whether they do well or not, we're going to love on them and support them and give them a second and third and fourth chance. And this is what a kid from poverty needs and deserves you know, from the entities serving them. But yeah, uh, that's what I call MICR magic. Like what you saw in that film is a very flash in the pan moment, a 2019 state championship run just four months prior to the pandemic. 
And um, it was a magical time in the history of MICR. But that's just, a, again, a lens into what is the community. And the community is special. And yeah, our kids just feel welcomed and comfortable and vibrant and supported. And they feel like their future is bright within the community. Um, you know, and that's supported and verified every time they come to programming by their coach, who's like so happy to see them. You seem very capable and experienced and very successful at creating momentum and creating energy to take something from nothing, to sell rugby, to get people to do it that would have no clue what it is and to start it out in a very humble way. What have you learned about either that or anything new that you're going to do? What does it actually take to build momentum and to build awareness and to get people on board when there's nothing that exists there currently? Just being genuine and authentic and excited and enthusiastic. I think people, and competent, I think that combination, you know, if you're genuine and you have really positive energy and enthusiasm towards something that matters, and then you have a competence towards it, you know, it's like, um, I think people can't help but get involved. And I am not very, and I, I'm not trying to be a, a martyr or, or self-depreciating anything like that. I, I, I actually just am aware of my shortcomings and I'm not a very like smart, talented person in, in the ways that matter when the rubber re- meets the road and scaling and building an organization. I have had the energy though and the enthusiasm and the heart to be sort of a magnetic force to very talented people to stay engaged, you know, like some of our best coaches that ever worked with MICR and influenced our kids and made such a huge impact. We're also Teach for America teachers who may have stayed in Memphis longer than their two-year commitment because they believed in MICR. And I kind of served as the glue that held that together, you know, that brand, that purpose, that mission, that entity. And so they stuck around in Memphis five years instead of two and like poured their talents into it. And then we were able to attract, you know, Andrea Wentz back to Memphis in 2018 after she, you know, got her master's degree and super talented, could probably be working in a Fortune 500 company making, you know, ridiculous amounts of money. Well, she's in Memphis and she came back here and she bought a house and she, you know, helped scale this organization. And Devin, you know, O'Brien, my co-founder, one of the most talented people you ever meet could also be, you know, running a, running a whole corporation probably like by this point. But, um, you know, he gave his talents to Memphis Industry Rugby. And so, I just think um, you can bring in talented people with the right competencies if you just show genuine, authentic energy, care, passion, heart, and a little bit of competency, you know, that what you're doing is right and that you can can do it. How would you describe the heart that you have for these girls and boys that are now men and women? For me, the heart, like, you have to have a crusade, you know? You have to be on a crusade. So I think you have to have a goal, to, to work towards winning, but you also have to have an enemy that you're like fighting against, at least for me. Like, I think I have it in my genes and DNA that like, I have to be in a fight, you know? So for me, like I'm fighting against like social injustice and like the systems of oppression that have held back the families of our kids for like too many generations and the unfair obstacles that they face that I didn't get to, that I didn't have to face, you know, growing up. So there's the like unleveled playing field that we were born on and, you know, I just think of all the examples and how that manifests in our society and in our kids' lives, and I get mad. And so I have like an enemy to fight against. And so I'm going to crusade to beat that enemy for and help our kids beat that enemy. And then a goal, you know, to achieve, you know, scholarship dollars, retention, upward mobility, economically, financially, 
academically, socially, emotionally, all these things we keep talking about. I, so I'm on a, I'm on a mission to move the needle forward on those things, but also I'm trying to beat an enemy. And so that's, um, that's the heart, you know, having, I think, passion on both ends. Given the fact that you're from Jersey and now you're living here in Memphis and that you did Teach for America, what can you share about where your heart for the systems or your anger for the systems of injustice, how did that get ingrained in you where other people, maybe like myself in certain ways at times, you feel indifferent and it doesn't, the passion's not as strong, but for you, it's, it's almost seems like why you exist up to this point is to fight it. My family lives in Naples, Florida, right? And they're still, you know, a middle-class family, like, but we do live in Naples, Florida. If you know anything about Naples, Florida, it is the home to most millionaires per capita in the entire country. It's like where, you know, millionaires from the Northeast and Midwest, you know, buy a second home and vacation in the winter time. And I have nothing against that. You know, I believe in, you know, people succeeding and enjoying their wealth and all these things. But I get to go there for Christmas and summer break. I take a visit down to Florida and I see both ends of the spectrum, you know, the the underbelly of South Memphis, Orange Mound, Westwood, Whitehaven, you know, Hickory Hill. And I, I see, you know, the opportunities our kids don't have, the resources they don't have, the the ways that that affects their lives and their their neurological development and just who they can become. And then I see the people with those resources just there's just a lack of awareness and there's a big disconnect and the way they talk about and think about, you know, the, the problems in the inner city and the crime. I'm like, crime is not the problem. Poverty is the problem. Fatherless homes aren't the problem. Poverty is the problem. You know, hunger isn't the problem. Poverty is the problem. Transportation isn't the problem. Poverty is the problem. Academic gaps and reading levels and literacy issues are not the problem. Poverty is the problem. So it's just like poverty, you know, is the enemy. And as human beings, we're all born with like unique talents and skills and potential and heart and the abilities and potential of our kids, the ones that I love the most and fight for are suppressed and hidden and often paralyzed by poverty and the, and the forces of poverty. And so, um, yeah, it just gets, it just gets frustrating. And so everything you laid out earlier, Memphis inner city rugby helps people overcome poverty. Well, we as an entity, I think, disrupt the symptoms of poverty. And when we do our best work, kids can overcome the obstacles that poverty creates and hopefully break a cycle of generational poverty for themselves and their family. For me to reflect that back, you're saying that that's nutrition, that's transportation, that's hope, that's relationships, that's resiliency, that's experiencing success that's showing up when you don't want to show up and that's getting in the right network group of relationships. Yep. Is that, is that what you said? Yeah. You're great at summarizing it and it's travel too, right? Like being exposed to different experiences and it's that network and knowing you're loved and knowing you have a safety net, right? Like we, we as like privileged people can tell stories about our lives where we like took a risk or like did something that was unknown or we like, embraced a challenge right in our lives and we talk about that like we're brave or something but really like we were just wired with like the neurological capacity to take risks because we know well I don't want to get into a rabbit hole about neuroscience but like we were raised in a privileged enough way to attack life in a way that affords us at least the opportunity to experience upward mobility 
And I don't think our kids are given the same platform and level playing field. And so you're saying everything that we just talked about just now, that's upward mobility. And that's how you get out of poverty. Yeah, you have to have a pathway towards up economic upward mobility to get out of poverty. And you, you need just so many resources and investments and relationships, you know, all the things we're talking about to actually have that opportunity. Earlier, you were talking about being jaded and angry at this rugby association. But for context purposes, you were talking about more how it's operated and what could be. Is that because you feel like you and the folks you've done this with have pioneered something that has used rugby as a way to transform thousands of lives and it should be a no-brainer for the International or National Association of Rugby to see that and to totally just adopt it the right way and it could just be a huge blessing to the rest of the country and then also just a huge benefit to them. Absolutely. Like you, yeah, like you hear rugby people and I, I hate to make them the enemy because, again, rugby people are mostly just good-hearted, volunteering their time. They don't know any better. They're not living in an inner city. You know, they're not living in Memphis, so they don't have exposure, you know, to all these things. But, like, let's say you just want to make rugby better. <laughs> yeah, well, why don't you invest in areas where some of the greatest athletes in America come from? You know, let's get them involved in our sport. By the way, it's, like, the cheapest sport to play. You need a ball and a patch of grass to get started, so why not introduce it to areas where there's economic despair and destitution. You know, we're not lacrosse. You don't need a helmet and a stick and pads and, you know, you know, we don't have to be this elite sport. Like why, why, why not? You know, and then you hear rugby people, you know, talk about the same things everyone across the country talks about is, you know, poverty and crime and there's different things going on in, in the communities that we serve. And like, why not use the sport? Like why? Yeah. So I just get frustrated because, the sport's been around for so long. It's, it's grown enough in our country. Everyone wants the same things, right? People to have better lives, more opportunity. We want rugby, like American rugby, like <laughs> we're like 14th in the world. We can barely beat Canada. You know, we're not even cracking the top 10. And yet we're supposed to be this like Olympic powerhouse. America has the best, best athletes in the world. Rugby is this sport that is so, you know, dependent on athleticism and fitness and, you know, just athletic prowess. Why are we not the best in the world? I don't know. But you'd think that all these American rugby people who care about that and want us to, I don't know, maybe be a top 10 team in the country or in the world would um, try something new. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we introduce the sport where it hasn't gone before. But I don't know, leave it to a bunch of 21-year-olds transplants in Memphis to break the mold. And so you're saying, I mean, not even just from a, publicity standpoint or an awareness standpoint, it would actually move the needle on talent across the country. Yeah. Let's say you didn't care about the kids. Like, let's say you didn't actually care about them or their futures or like the communities. Like you just wanted to make rugby better in America. <laughs> I would start at the same place. It just doesn't make sense to me. I just think people are scared or racist or lack the competency and the resources. Have you tried to meet with them? Yeah, I mean, we we co-founded the Urban Rugby. Oh, you're talking about USA Rugby? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've gone up there. You know, they're headquartered in Colorado, and they're, they're just, they're bankrupt, literally bankrupt. They have no money. They had to downsize from, like, a 32-person staff to a nine-person staff. So, like, while I'd love to, like, put a target on their back and, like, you know, make my crusade against them, like, they're not doing enough for the inner city. But they just, they just don't. They, they can't do anything for really anybody. Like, you know, they're just surviving. So, Can you share what you're building with other cities around the country? 
Yeah, so the, the Urban Rugby Initiative, uh, we co-founded it, we being, uh, you know, myself and Memphis Inner City Rugby Leadership, along with ICEF, which is Inner City Education Fund out of Los Angeles, specifically ICEF Rugby. And they've been around for 20 years, and they're like MICR in terms of a target demographic, but they're actually not scaled like we are. They are one boys team, one girls team, and like an outreach middle school program um, that's lighter touch. where We're, we're like much more in-depth, and we kind of scaled to many schools, and we have this like more large-scale operation, but we have a very common mission, common target demographic, and we got together and co-founded the Urban Rugby Initiative, which is an entity that exists to unite, empower, and energize and advance the very few and far between inner-city rugby youth programs there are across the country. And so we don't have much in terms of like, we don't, as the Urban Rugby Initiative doesn't have money, it doesn't have a website, it doesn't have really anything besides an entity, which is the Urban Rugby Championship a now annual tradition that started in Memphis in 2022, where we hosted teams from coast to coast, LA, DC, Dallas, Chicago. They came to compete for the first time in American history that there was an event or an entity exclusively for the benefit of black and brown uh, students from urban backgrounds, you know, in poverty. Uh, They came together and made a family, made a community, started the tradition. And then it carried on just three weeks ago in Los Angeles for the second annual Urban Rugby Championships. And then next year's um, will be next spring in 2024. And so this thing will carry on and hopefully make the lives easier of people that are attempting to kind of duplicate the work of MICR into the future. So are all these other cities, are they trying to duplicate the work of MICR? Not quite duplicate because what we've done is like such a difficult version, like in terms of scaling and having multiple teams and connecting with school partners and just all these services we provide. But the urban rugby initiative teams and organizations are just trying to serve a similar target demographic, right? It's, so it's laying the groundwork. It's laying the groundwork. And we're happy if one of them just gets off the ground and operates for one full season, you know? So you had this idea or somebody with you? Yeah, we've always thought about it. We being like MICR, we've always, like we've fallen backwards into, all, into these services because every time some rugby enthusiast or urban educator or just somebody with resources wants to start an urban inner city rugby initiative in let's say Baltimore, New Orleans, Dallas, Houston, LA, Oakland, it doesn't matter. They end up calling us because they call USA rugby. They realize, Oh, they're bankrupt. They only don't have, they're not answering the phone. You know, they don't even know how to do this work. And they Google and they see that like, we're kind of the flagship urban rugby program in America. And they email us, they call us, they Facebook message us. And they're like, Hey, can we get on the phone talk to you? Can you talk to my school district? You know? And so we've ended up like being a consultant nationally for all these programs that contact us and we've fallen backwards into being their consultants for free, you know, but we do it on our uh, imaginary spare time. <laughs> Given your experience in urban education, if somebody called you tomorrow and said, hey, I got 25 grand and said, what's the reason I should give this to Memphis inner city rugby versus giving it to another urban educational initiative? How would you answer that? I would just say, no organization is more to the point efficient and optimized in terms of how we will stretch every penny of that $25,000 towards the exact mission and the exact people that you're trying to impact in the way you're trying to impact them. In in, in other words, and in simpler terms, we don't have overhead that two thirds of your 25 K is covering before it starts to make an impact in the actual lives of the kids. It's all going there. You know, and uh, Slingshot Memphis, uh, a local sort of impact auditor that has studied and assessed our impact and efficiency in the fight to disrupt poverty since 2017, says that as of two months ago, it's a very updated study and assessment. 
again, measuring our budget, our benefit cost ratio, our systems level change, our best practices, you know, the way we measure impact. It's, it's, it's comprehensive. Um, and they say for every dollar we spend at MICR, we create at least $2 of uh, poverty fighting impact. So it's essentially proven in quantitative terms, but I can tell you it in personal qualitative terms all day. I mean, is that pretty uncommon? The one to two ratio? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think <laughs> I would question and do my own personal audit of any charity that claims a similar ratio <laughs> because I believe it for us um, because I, I know and experience, you know, how far we stretch to make our impact and justify our existence and answer on the call of our mission. And so that is uncommon. And uh, I would I would be skeptical of anyone else. Not, not that it's impossible. I, I totally believe and acknowledge that other organizations can and do uh, make that efficient impact, but I, I would just want to lift the hood on it. So a few minutes ago, we were talking about this national tournament that you put together. First year here, second year, LA, third year, DC, right? And you got how many different cities competing? Six to eight, give or take. And you've also it. talking about how the National Rugby Association in the United States is bankrupt. And so there's really not a resource for people to go to as they're trying, if they love rugby or if they see it similar to the way that you've done it here as a way to make an impact in their cities around the country. So in the free time that you have, which is none, you said that laughingly, that you're kind of the go-to and people will call you. Mm -hmm. But earlier, you were also saying travel. Travel is a huge piece of opportunity gap. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I've personally been blessed to be able to take our kids on trips and tournaments, college visits over 10 years from, you know, before the pandemic, it was like we had tra our kids had traveled to 17 states and four different countries through rugby opportunities. And it's not like MICR is sitting here raising money for travel and then sending kids places. Like we get scholarships, we beg, borrow, and steal. We like create these opportunities and manufacture them in creative ways because we like can't afford them. But our kids have played in Chicago, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Louisville, St. Louis, Nashville, on the East Coast, in Florida, Carolinas, Georgia. You know, we played everywhere. And then our coaches have gotten developed in London. We sent coaches and referees to train in Laos, in Asia. We've had kids go to Canada for All-American camps. And so I have seen firsthand when they get on an airplane for the first time, when they experience like the cultural exchange and the common passion for rugby with a kid that's from a different country or state, but shares a similar background or they can exchange their Snapchat, uh, you know, usernames and stay in touch. It just like, it just from a neurological perspective to a social emotional health perspective to a actually having a a resourceful network in your life perspective, you know, as a kid from poverty that might not have a, a deep uh, resourceful network in their lives, you know, in their family, like it's just so powerful. Um, and I was well-traveled as a kid, you know, I got opportunities to go different places, fly in a plane and, you know, travel has become a, a, a really a good passion of mine, you know, when I, and if I go on vacation or like have time, like, you know, people say, what are your passions? What do you like to do for fun? Like, well, I haven't gotten to do much for fun. Um, you know, since graduating college and starting MICR, but uh, I think of travel. I think of going to mountains. I think of think meeting people in different countries. I dream about 
you know, playing touch rugby in a different country and just like sharing a common language of a foreign sport. I don't know. So yeah, it's just been a very, very powerful. It, it kind of accelerates all of the different things we do and the services we provide when a kid can travel and have like a dynamic, meaningful experience away from home. It, it like accelerates and like sort of douses those flames. Um, so everything we're working so hard to do and accomplish in terms of these impact and services, like it just moves forward so much faster when they get to travel and like put it into practice and like live it out. You're saying it exposes them. It exposes them and like puts all that, like they're developing as communicators, leaders, they're, they're developing as like personality managers, all these things that we like, we pour into them. You know, it's like they're raw, exposed and vulnerable on the road and uncomfortable. They're out of that comfort zone. So you get to see all these things like manifest and like come to life and come to the surface. They're out, they're out of their comfort zone, you know? From a thriftiness standpoint, from a grind standpoint, from a dollar standpoint, earlier you were talking about this trip to LA, LA that it would have normally cost $30,000. Is that right? Easily, easily. Some other programs spent that much to get there and do it, yeah. And you did it for twelve. Yeah, it was like between 12 and 15, yeah. Can you explain your mindset and your approach to stretch the dollars the way that you, you've had to do it, given such a scrappy <laughs> organization, nonprofit? It, it's a scarcity mindset, honestly, because we've always had our backs against the wall. We've always been operating on the brink of existence. So, like, I'm, I'm going and be – I'm a pretty good travel agent at this point. Like, if you want a travel agent, uh, you know, book me. Like, I'll, you know, I, I've, I've been on this, you know – path before having to try to figure out how to do travel for cheap. And so, you know, we're booking like a budget airline, Allegiant, Allegiant Airlines, you know, has a route to Los Angeles that really made this possible. The round trip was more affordable, but they nickel and dime you for like carry on bags. So we're like having a training with all our not well-traveled kids to teach them how to like pack four days of clothes into a backpack so they can get the carry on, save even more money. You know, when we get to the hotel, you know, they have an extra charge for sticking four people in a room as opposed to two. So I'm like sneaking kids into the lobby so that we can avoid like the extra charge for, you know, four people in a room as opposed to two. I call this bus company in Los Angeles and I'm just like, uh, hey, can we get a discount? No. Okay. I call the next one. I'm like telling them our story. I'm like, hey, these kids, they've never traveled. We will really like, we'll share y'all on social media. Well, I'm just trying to like get everyone that's a vendor, hotel, bus, food, plane, invested in our mission so that we can get discounts or cheap or free services because that's how we can afford to do things like this. And so, yeah, just being like a sort of thrifty, resourceful travel agent, you know, to get these things uh, accessible for our kids. So, And are you saying you would have failed if you don't operate that way? Yeah. I mean, we would would be broke or we would, uh, yeah, we just, we have to operate that way. Yeah. What's it like given your, from your standpoint, given the fact that you're not married, you don't have kids, and you did this while you were teaching. Can you speak to the commitment that it takes from you and the people that you've done this with from your own personal income to be able to pull this off? Um, not to be uninspiring, but like I wouldn't wish it on anybody. You know, like I, I talked to some other like founders of like, for example, Dallas Youth Rugby like has a grassroots founder, this, this man named Basilo Torres has become a great friend of mine. And he's from, you know, Sunnyside, Dallas, and he's trying to do this really great work. And he's trying to decide, he's at this inflection point, he's like five years into it. And he's trying to decide, like, do I take this to the next level and sustain it? Or do I keep this super grassroots and small? And like, he's using the MICR model and like, and I, I can't tell him in good faith, like, yeah, grow it, like do it, like be what we became, because I don't want him to sacrifice his joy in life and his freedom in life. And I want him to like, 
miss out on his best years or like have a bad relationship or like just be so consumed and paralyzed in his own personal life that he has to give it all. So I, I, I struggle with that because, um, yeah, we sacrifice so much and here we have this, you know, great program, but, uh, yeah, I find myself, um, regretful, uh, uh, frustrated, somewhat resentful. Um, just personally, I know how, I know how important it is. I'm very grateful for the opportunities and I, I'm not, it is not lost on me, um, that I, I am better for all of the things that have happened with Memphis Center Rugby as well. And I'm very uh, proud of the organization and, and grateful for my role in it. But yeah, it just, it just causes so much, sac- it, it requires so much sacrifice and martyrdom, um, an unhealthy lifestyle that um, I would just like someone else to, if someone else was to do it, I would say, wait till you have like a million dollars in the bank to scale, to, to, you know, do it sustainably, you know, whereas we just did it from the start with zero. How have you not lost your edge? Um, I have lost my edge. You know, I have definitely lost it. And I was um, experiencing a really difficult chapter, you know, in 2022. You know, I, I can get into all that, but it's very difficult. And um, I was really almost almost done. I was almost tapped out. I, I thought I couldn't do it anymore. And then, you know, the team at MICR and all these great people that we've been able to build the organization with and the board of directors, you know, sort of sent me on a sabbatical um, June and July. I you know, wasn't even allowed to check an email or answer the phone. And they kind of ran summer programming without me. And we kind of hit this reset button. My co-founder got back involved, you know, from New York to um, sort of backfill some of the roles that I was playing. And so I was able to like get off the grid for two months in June and July of 2022 and um, sort of heal and uh, take a deep breath and come back in for um, this academic year, which we're in now. This is before you and I met. So you hit a really low point. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they essentially you either said, I got to go on a sabbatical or they told you you need to go on a sabbatical. Yeah, I was kind of flirting with like, I, I can't do this anymore, like resignation talks, you know, because I was like just that distraught, you know, in both my personal life and my like energy around the, around Memphis Inner City Rugby that um, was just scaring me and people around me. And uh, yeah, I was very lucky and very blessed to have just like caring, mindful people that said, okay, like let's see if we can organize like a sabbatical, like you, you've earned it over 10 years, you know, of service. So let's, let's have you get out of town for two months, you know, and, um, come back and see how you feel. So what'd you do? Uh, I got in the mountains, you know, I, uh, went Where'd back, you go? uh, backpacked in the Adirondacks, but actually with my co-founder who's, who's like my best friend and my brother. Um, so we batter backpacked in the Adirondacks. Um, I did a little bit of staycationing and just like catching up on life, you know, working on my own house in Memphis uh, did some more backpacking in the Sierra Nevadas with one of my best friends from childhood, Brian, who lives out there. Most that I do. I just got I worked out a lot. I got in the gym. I just you know tried to tried to heal. What did you think about? Just, I thought about just healing. You know, I was so I was in the middle of uh, you know this is very personal, but recovering from you know heartbreak and and some addictions and like things that have got got really out of control. You know, towards that point, like just deprioritizing myself as an individual for so long, like. Believe it or not, it catches up with you, you know? And so I was just fully focused for two months. I would love to have been focused on like, man, let's have a good time and live it up and like just finally like get out there again. I would love to have had it been this like fun energy sabbatical, but like I had to just heal. Um, so that's, that was my only focus. And I went to like a lot of therapy and different things like that. So, Can you describe what you thought about that made you come back? Um, well, it was always part of the plan to come back. Like I wasn't going to like take a sabbatical and then be like, thanks for the... <laughs> you know, two months of paid leave, see you later, figure out how to do this without me. 
Um, it was always part of the plan to come back. And it was just a prayer that I came back more whole, you know, and healed and then like ready and had with the capacity to like continue to deliver on the mission. So I always, yeah, I always knew that I was, I was coming back. It wasn't like I had like a moment that like, oh, I'm, I'm, I can do this. I can do this again. I took the sabbatical always with the understanding that like I had to come back and deliver again, you know. But if you didn't want to come back, you would have found that out. Well, that was a concern of like the people that around MICR that like helped position me for the sabbatical. They were like, you need to be careful like that when you're on this journey and you're healing that you decide you can't do it anymore and you come back and you're like, I don't want to start again. And I pretty much guaranteed them that I wouldn't do that. I said, no way. I said, no way. Like I'm coming back because we're not in a position financially to like, no, no one can just come replace me right now. Um, if we had more investment and we had some more runway and sustainability, I'd be able to realistically look at like someone replacing me, but no, no one in their right mind is going to come take my job right now because it's just not, it wouldn't be fair to them. And so when I came back to continue after the sabbatical, I was like, not only do I not have anything else going on, like, I don't know what else I would do. It's not like I have like a bunch of other like job opportunities. Like this is my life's work. I haven't even like turned the stones on like next steps. I don't just haven't been able to do that. But um, I'm also just like, man, I have to prepare the organization for a succession. If that day comes, you know, that someone could come in and live a reasonable life and lead the organization, you know? So what do you think's on the other side of it now? That time off, rock bottom, coming back and getting healed. What do you see for the next phase? Uh, trying to position the organization to, to be able to operate at scale and make the impact that we make while not driving the adults who run it into the ground. So can we, like, we've always been focused on surrounding our kids with a network and resources and services that are meaningful to their lives. But in order for all that to persist, can we surround the adults who make it happen and raise the money and design the programs and deliver the coaching and, you know, train the, co you know, all those things. Can we surround them with the resources to have their lives and jobs be sustainable? So that's kind of like the next step. Like, can we replace me or anybody in the organization without having them lose their lives over it? How do you keep up with the human behavior, with the science, with the psychology, with the things that you do from a holistic standpoint? Uh, just trying to stay on the cutting edge of like the research, you know, back in 2012 when we started MICR, it didn't seem like there was much research on like the impact of sports-based youth development and like trauma-informed coaching and like the neuroscience of athletes who are healing from, you know, tr traumatic uh, or adverse childhood events they call ACEs. And so just trying to stay current with like the the cutting edge of like, what is the Center for Healing and Justice through Sport doing with their research that they got from Hello Insight surveys across, you know, organizations globally that are partners with Laureus, like the Laureus Sport for Good Foundation, right? Like, I'm just name dropping entities and institutions that are like on the cutting edge of sports-based development, you know, and trauma-informed coaching. And so we are partners with those institutions because we want to be on the cutting edge of it and we don't want to just say that we do this stuff. And I always thought when I was coaching and we, when, we, when we didn't have as many resources, no partners, no formal coach training, I always knew and thought that in the DNA of our approach, we were healing and we were uh, trauma-informed and we were providing meaningful – I always thought that was what we were doing, and it, it was. Um, but now we're doing it in a codified manner with more sort of um, quantitative outcomes and 
with more intentionality and training behind it so we can truly say we address these things. Why hasn't like Teach for America themselves, the national brand, gotten involved with what you're doing, given the fact that you're an alum and all the results that you've been able to share? Well, I mean, they, they have, right? They, they've like, you, for example, the executive director of Teach for America Memphis is on our board of directors, Chris Coleman. He's amazing. He's a donor. He advocates for us. He helps me by inviting us to go speak at their events, to like recruit new teachers and like have this continued pipeline of like urban educator talent coming into our coaching ranks. And, and they've, you know, they've given us awards, you know, like we've got like an alumni award before for like leadership outside the classroom, different things like that. Um, and so they have been involved, I guess, in those capacities. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> no, but what I'm, like, what I'm saying is like, it seems like there's an opportunity to roll this out in every major city around the country. Trust me. I wish that they would kind of lean really deeply into what we do, but I, I will say teach for America has like very ambitious, talented, young, like alumni who go on to become like senators and congressmen and like the founder of Bronx lacrosse, right? Like a similar organization in the Bronx using lacrosse. That's a Teach for America alumni. And like Teach for America alumni across the country have a track record of like becoming founders and co-founders of like different initiatives that surround education, whether it be like ed tech or sports-based youth development or becoming like an advocate or a politician or a school principal. And there's all these like thousands of like stories of like Teach for America alumni like myself becoming involved at this level that, um, you know, they, they just have so much that they could invest in lean into that. It's just like, they, they have this uh, annual social innovation awards, a hundred grand that goes to like teach for America alumni who apply. It's like a grant and we've applied several years and never gotten it. I wish we could. Right. But like, that just, I guess, speaks to the landscape and competitiveness of like Teach for America, ambitious alums doing like work across the country. You so know? you're saying there's a lot of people like yourself doing this yes. within a within a, a vertical that they they're all in on. Yes, yes, and it's not always in sports based development, like different different initiatives that yeah, it's like all over the country. Teach for America alums are like very ambitious and like yeah, all that stuff. What advice can you share to somebody about being comfortable in chaos and pull things off for that day? And being okay with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I never did this in healthy ways. So I don't have a good self firsthand experience, like experienced answer, but I would say get reps, you know, get reps. And that's what we tell the kids, you know, you're not going to be a great tackler or passer or like rugby player until you just get reps. You have to like do the drills in practice. You have to feel it out. You have to play the games and like, you have to, you have to fail at first, you know, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to be, you have to start to be great. And so, you know, that's how you get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, um, I would say get reps and, uh, find a way to sleep at night because when you're in the chaos, if you don't have some kind of release, if you don't have some kind of, um, person or entity or habit or routine or thing that brings you joy or helps you sleep at night, like being in the trenches at that level, and engage at that level and in the chaos at that frequency, like will ruin you. When you think about the best teachers and the best coaches that, that come to mind, what's at the core of them? Talent, uh, talent and heart, you know, like a heart for like a sort of uh, relentless belief and unconditional positive regard for our kids who, who can like let you down and be a pain in your butt and like 
all these things, but like really believing in them and loving them. That's the heart, right? And having that unconditional positive regard for our population and our students and our communities, but then having the talent and competency to like actually deliver on it and like be a, a meaningful entity in their lives. So I think of, I always think of Andres Lopez. He was a Teach for America core member from the class of 2012, same, same class as me and my co-founder. He was actually my co-founder's roommate and we were good friends with Andres and he was a high school science teacher that had like a small rugby background. He played rugby at UNC Chapel Hill out in North Carolina and, um, He's a doctor now, you know, he like deferred medical school for four or five years to like continue to coach with us. Andres, Lo- we, 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 at MICR annually, we give out the Lopez award for leadership. We call it the Lopez award for leadership because we've named it after coach Lopez who just held kids accountable. He was hard on them. He was loud and in your face, but he cared and loved them and listened to them. And he ended up like playing like magic car i don't know you ever heard of like magic the gathering like the card game like or like i've heard of it different like he he like he was a nerd you know like he got them into all these like nerdy games and they like would go grill out at his house on weekends and one of these kids ended up living with him because they just had such meaningful relationships and his wife and they, they just like but when he got on that rugby field he was so passionate his voice was big and loud not that you have to be like you don't have to be some extrovert militant you know, drill sergeant to like be uh, a great, you know, entity, a great coach. You can be an introvert and have a different approach, but man, coach Lopez was just on fire. And so, you know, his kids loved him so much just as a teacher that when he launched rugby tryouts with MICR, 60 boys came out, 70 girls came, like the whole school almost. Anyone who was like a so-called athlete came out and like tried the strange sport he could have said, this is the bowling team. And they all would have came and followed and tried out because it was Coach Lopez and he had that magnetic effect, man. He was just unbelievable. People trusted him. They loved him. Yeah. And they felt connected to him. Yeah, to the point where as a kid, you know, you almost want his accountability, right? Like you you don't want to upset him, but as you're traversing through life and figuring out right from wrong and, you're, you know, who you should hang out with and who you shouldn't, like you wanted Lopez to give you a hard time almost. You knew it was coming anyway. You know, you needed it, you know, you, you, you knew it was good for you. Like you trusted him enough to give you the right message and that he could hammer you as hard as he wanted, but it was all out of love. So there was this level of like trust and enrichment, you know, sort of woven through it. So it's special talent, you know. Do you ever wish you were a doctor in finance or owned a business or? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. When Like financially. Yeah. Like I, and I think about that often. I'm like, man. What lives could have been changed if we were able to pay Lopez what, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's a talented doctor and like the medical field needs him, sure. Let, and let's say, I'm not here to get in his wallet, but let's say, let's say he gets paid a hundred grand a year, probably more as a doctor, right? But let's just say a hundred grand a year. I'm like, man, what if we were able to compete with that in a fantasy world and just like pay him to continue enriching the lives of kids? It would be a massive win for the world, you know, because- we just don't, you just don't find or retain talented educators like that in the circumstances that we exist within, you know? So I guess you really don't even think about it for yourself. You just think about it for the impact. Yeah. I just think about like for the work, like money buys talent, right? And I'm not saying Andre sold out for the money. He, he actually did the opposite. Like I said, he stayed three or four years beyond his Teach for America commitment to be in the trenches, in the mission. He could have gone to med school on a full ride. Uh, way earlier, but he said, no, nah, I'm here. And he gave everything. And um, I'm like, yeah, what if we could buy the more time of people with that level of talent 
and not have them burn out like myself. And Andres would tell you this firsthand. Andres Lopez would tell you this firsthand. He got jaded and burnt out by all the difficult work that we did. What does this mean? When players face an opponent from a different socioeconomic and ethnic background, the tensions and misunderstandings that exist between communities that are usually isolated are broken down. Yeah, it's, it's well, at, at the foundational level, it's a union of two groups of people that probably wouldn't be interacting otherwise, right? Like a group of rich suburban private school kids playing against a bunch of, you know, kids from South Memphis and Orange Mound that certainly don't pay tuition to go to where they go to school. Um, so just just being on the same in the same place is like something that's different and it wouldn't otherwise happen. But then when you play the game and you blow the whistle and the kickoff starts and the captains are shaking hands, it's it humanizes and equalizes these these people um, in in this very competitive sport. And so you get to feel out the uh, benefits of like what they get in the suburbs working out in like a $20 million weight room and, you know, having a refrigerator full of food and, you know, your rugby practices, you have a full scrum sled and you have a turf field and a football stadium. And by the way, you can come back to practice at 6.30 PM and go till nine because you have lights and, you know, you, you just like, it is the ultimate illustration of, you know, the unfair realities that our kids face when compared to their suburban counterparts, but it builds real relationships and ties, you know, between communities that wouldn't otherwise exist. So it frustrates me and I love it. What do you see? What can happen in 10 years from now? No, well, <laughs> it depends on money. Because what money gives you the ability to have coaches. And when you have coaches, you can have more players. And when you have more players, you can have more impact. Is that why money matters? Yeah, and not just the coaches, but all of the services, you know, and the resources that we provide to kids through coaches. So, which yes, is like what? Which is the food, the travel, the uniforms, the registration costs, the mental health counseling, the college counseling, the pathway to and through alumni support, everything involved with their year-round participation in rugby and all the things that come with it. So you said depends on money, but what, 10 years from now? I would have to answer your question in almost two ways. Like one, like if money wasn't an issue, like if someone gave us some kind of huge investment, like, well, what's possible? Well, I can dream big and paint a picture for you there. What's uh, that? Uh, just that we would, you know, I just talked about the on the field differences between like the kids who are in the suburbs working out in $20 million weight rooms, eating a turkey sandwich, getting dropped off by mom versus our kids who like, ate hot chips all week, got an Uber from MICR to the game, haven't touched a weight room in their lives and still have to go against those kids. Like, well, we would level that playing field. You know, we would expose our kids to like weightlifting. We would get them like more adequate uniforms. We would like increase our investment in their nutrition and travel to just level the playing field in some of those ways. We would increase our scholarship fund so that when kids go to Southwest, CBU, Rhodes, U of M, they stay in town to become our coaches. They're going to trade school. They can get a scholarship to like afford school and like stay on a trajectory without like economic risk or like falling behind in their own, you know, paying of bills, things like that. We would hire, yeah, more staff so that like, you know, right now we have two coaches per team and like they are so spread thin. They have to take attendance. They have to do like checkout so our kids don't get in the wrong car when they leave and the Ubers and Lyfts. They're running a taxi dispatch operation. They're filling up water jugs. They're making sure that we have food at each practice. They got to make sure all the balls are inflated. The behaviors that come out, the, you know, kids, kids come to practice with all kinds of emotions. You need to do like a step in my office like five different times in like the first hour of practice to just help emotionally regulate a kid who came with some energy that doesn't, isn't conducive to like a productive practice. So like two coaches and 30 kids, 
you need, you need more bodies. Like you need another coach just to be like an eyes for safety or like a step into my office, like mini psychotherapy session during practice. And then like, you want to divide backs and forwards. So one coach is with the backs, one coach is with the forwards. And then who, who else is, who's doing the parent relations and the phone call home. And this kid got injured. Like it is just capacity stretched. You know, our practices, like it's, it's, I don't know. I know I'm rambling, but gosh, I would just invest more resources into the student experience. You know, we call it world-class because we believe we're the only ones doing it like this, but I want to make it really world-class, like something where you don't have to know how unique this is and you walk around the MICR magic and say, that's world-class. Can you do something this good with a plan B or do you have to be all in? A plan B for like my life and my career? Yeah. Oh, no, I've never even thought about, like, I've never even thought about what I would do. Like, I I joke, I jokingly tell people I'm going to be a farmer in my next life because- I don't want to check emails anymore. I don't want to, yeah, I, like that, that's like the jaded, exhausted part of me. Like, I just want to dig a hole and like, you know, uh, milk the cows, you know, like, like physical, physical labor, like, cause I feel like that'd be healing for me. So that's, a, that's kind of a joke, although it's not. Um, and no, I don't have a plan B or a next step. A lot of people think that I might go and do this like nationally scaled urban rugby initiative and have that be like the next project for me. But then that would mean just continuing to like beg for money and like, raise impossible amounts. And yeah, I don't know. So like, I don't know. I have to like, I have to do my own level of healing uh, and searching to like figure out what's next, but I haven't really ever thought about it too much. So I guess going back to a minute ago, I asked you about what you see could be in 10 years and you say, it depends. I'll answer that two ways. One would be with a, a big check, how we would use a large amount of money. And I guess the other would be if, if you just kept trending like you are now, but I guess, is it fair to say that your answer would be the same? that you would still keep pushing and keep improving it if you had minimal money or if you had one big check, just the big check would just accelerate the impact? Oh, yeah. A big check would solidify, codify, and accelerate the impact, I think, without that. And uh, if we had to just, like, go another 10 years with our backs against the wall, you know what I mean, like, um, on the brink of existence, then we would have to consider, like, scaling down the operation to, like, reach less kids and less teams because at MICR, like, we are more focused on depth of impact on each human being rather than like, we serve a thousand kids. Like we're not, you know what I'm saying? We're not focused on quantity. We're focused on quality. And so if we had to persist for another 10, 20 years with very limited financial resources, it might be just like scaling down the operation, reaching less kids, maybe lowering the scholarship fund. Maybe every practice doesn't get nutrition. Maybe the teams aren't wearing uniforms that match. You know what I'm saying? Like we would just... Yeah, just do it bare bones, which we have plenty of experience doing. Is there a particular story that you're comfortable sharing as we wrap up of like a mother and anything she said to you about the impact that Memphis Inner City Rugby is and what it's meant to her and her son or her daughter? Oh, man, there's so many, so many moms, you know, moms are the moms and grandmas seem to be the pillar often, you know, in, in the in the families that we serve. And so. I don't even know where to start. I, I guess I, I can think of, you know, I, and I, I'll even say names because these aren't like dark stories, although there's plenty of those. But like Nadia Bonner Burton was uh, a player for our Westwood Whitehaven girls rugby team. She won two state championships during her time there and, you know, then uh, wanted to go to Christian Brothers University, stay local. There was talk of like a rugby team starting there and it just wasn't affordable for her and her family. They, you know, it's a private institution. There wasn't a lot of like major scholarships going. This family is pretty poor. And Nadia 
really like through her personality and character, like ascended through the ranks of MICR, became like a team captain, caught the attention of like our board board chairman who like knew someone at CBU. Anyway, through just like the network of MICR and the connectivity of the community and how special Nadia was and how ambitious she was against limited resources, like people rallied to like raise enough money for her to like go to go to CBU on a scholarship because of MICR, like because of her role with us and like the advocacy of the organization. And so like, I remember sitting at a, in the hotel lobby of the Holiday Inn across the street from University of Memphis on Central Avenue there. And, um, you know, having Nadia and her mother come in to meet me and like the board chairman of MICR. And we were about to share with them the news that like her scholarship, her, her, her college tuition was like taken care of. And, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Nadia, by the way, is graduating from CBU in less than, uh, six months, but I just will never forget that memory of like having her, her mom just like weeping, you know, and that we weren't looking for some, you know, reaction or anything like that. We weren't trying to stage some, like this isn't on camera or anything like that, but just sharing that with her, she just felt like her life was changed through her daughter, you know, and she was like realizing that her daughter was going to be able to like exist in a different reality than the reality she grew up in. This was like her seeing like sort of transformational economic change happen in front of her. And so that was just like a special moment. Yeah. And there's just, I, I could share stories with you all day. I just, you know, ran into a mom the other day at the grocery store of an alum who's like 25 years old now who just embraced me and, you know, called me coach. And she just remembered all the days I dropped off her son at her house in Orange Mound after practice. And her son half the time had his head leaning on the window crying because I was holding him accountable and he had, you know, severe social emotional regulation issues and practice would just trigger him through physicality. You know, we thought he was being attacked, but really it was just tackling and he just trauma brain, full trauma brain. And his, his grandma and his mom had to deal with that. And they, they saw rugby unravel those things within him and watched him become a first generation college graduate. He's now a teacher here in Memphis uh, and a coach for us. So like his life turned around in a major way. And I was his coach from the beginning. And, you know, I think me and his grandma have just like an unspoken love for each other because we both know, like we both know how tedious it was to get this young man on the right track and how difficult it was and how unlikely it was. But like we did it together, you know, sort of like MICR's entity, me as his coach, grandma as like the pillar in his life. And we all like together, like overcame major obstacles to get him to where he is now. And now he's still, he's still focused on mental health issues because trauma doesn't just go away. He's still dealing with it, you know, but at least economically he's on a different playing field. So I don't know. I'm sorry for rambling, but just like, there's so many, I would need to think about it more, but. Well, I think the dots connect in my head. I mean, if the statistics accurate that there's 11 million kids in poverty in USA, I think it might've gone down like 2% last year, but based off of what you've shared and how connected you and all the other coaches are and all the alumni are and how you're able to come in, intervene, love, support, connect, teach, grow. Like what better way, man, to make an impact? I think it's the perfect antidote. You talk about all the issues that poverty can create in the life of a kid in South Memphis. And I'm like, rugby's not the antidote. That's not, it's not the magic sauce, but like this community, these talented people, yes, the sport being the foundation of it and all the services we provide. I'm like, I can't think I, I can't think of a better antidote, a better a better solution, holistic solution, you know, long term for a kid. And man, I gotta say, you're an inspiration being around you. I mean, ever since Cal Slatery introduced us, the passion, the energy, the drive, the tenacity that 
and how serious you take this work. I mean, it's an inspiration and, you know, and it's encouraging. Like, I think, I mean, for me, like my life, it can be up and down and I care a lot about what I do and it's not easy by any means. And it's not nearly as difficult or challenging as what you're, the work you're doing and the impact you're making. But like, man, when you meet people like yourself, that energy and that passion is contagious. And a lot of things that we've talked about today, I had it a lot easier. But you bring out this sense of passion, drive, focus, risk, service. I think you bring out other people around you. And this is the second time we've been together, but I respect you tremendously. And I hope our time together with this helps people see the work that you've been doing for 10 years. I mean, in 2017, you had an article written in Forbes. Nike's done a documentary. You know, I could list the awards and I'm just, this is just one podcast interview, but it's clear that the best people I've ever been around in my life that do the best work, that create the most impact, they never do it for recognition. They never do it for praise. They're doing it because it's whatever, it's engraved on their heart and you're one of those people. And so I just hope that, people listen to this that somehow some way it just helps you in what y'all are doing because what you're saying I mean if the data and all that and the results and everything checks out it's a diamond in the rough well man I just appreciate your kind words and you using your platform to help us tell the story because that matters and you know if it's one set of ears that hears it and thinks like you right if people that think this is this is important you know then we'll get some help and um I just appreciate you, man, and 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 your understanding, your vulnerability, your you have a passion for for these important topics, and I just now now need to get you to a game <laughs> because right now you you see me as this figurehead, and and I, I appreciate how inspired you are, but wait till you see the kids and them experiencing the benefits, and their coaches loving on them and motivating them and holding them accountable and watching them compete. Um, you will see the the magic of MICR. In fact, uh, Tuesday there's games after school if you. Um, are free then. Well, I'll, I'll get you the whole schedule, but my goodness, um, I need I need you to see see these kids, and um, it's all going to come home for you, I think. Well, I want to come, and I and I will come. But the last thing I'll say is like, I mean, there's and this is not to knock anything or anybody, but there's many organizations in just this city that we're in. They get millions of dollars a year that, from a quantifiable standpoint, impact a lot less people than what y'all are able to do based off of everything that I've read and what we've talked about today. Or more and, people, but in less significant ways. And, and I way. think when you understand, again, when you understand or you, you think you start to wrap your head around what is done in such a bootstrapped, grassroots way and the result and the impact that's being done, and then you see $471 billion moving throughout the country, which I know that goes to a lot of good, and this is not to knock anything, but it's like, Man, it makes it makes you want the people that know what they're doing and that are all in. How can they get all the support they need? Because that's just going to create more of an impact for people's lives being changed. Oh, it's crazy. I, I was talking to a guy who's runs uh, Raymond James. I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be just dropping companies' names because they're not doing anything wrong. But uh, you know, locally, and I'm like trying to network my way in because we need some kind of real money, real sponsorship, real real investment. And I talked to them, and they're like, "Well, we're we're." currently like working with United Way and that's kind of our portfolio for investment right now. And maybe, maybe one day, you know, and I'm like, Oh my God, it's like breaks my heart. Like United Way is awesome. Sure. Like amazing. But like, 
oh my gosh, they have a commercial in the Super Bowl. They have this national base of funding. Like they're going to be fine. Oh my gosh. You want to invest in efficiently right to the population, right to the people in your own town, in your backyard. I'm the co-founder. This is my life's work. You can look at me. You can come see the kids. It's right down the street. Like there's no gap between your investment philanthropically and what you're trying to do or should be trying to do. And I'm just like, we got to wait on y'all's investment in United Way before we even get to ask. I'm like, oh my gosh. So yeah, we're in the shadows of St. Jude and United Way and the Boys and Girls Club and all these, you know, amazing uh, entities. Like I have no, no problem with any of them. They all do great work, but uh, we're the grassroots. We're, we're in the trenches, man. We, <laughs> we're, we're 10 years old, but we're, we might as well be a newborn in this kind of world. So Yeah, and we can show you the impact and how the money's being used. Exactly. And going right to the front line. Yeah, all transparent. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.